You're listening to The Real Wealth Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource. Our guest today is in a much needed but much challenged industry, residential assisted living. And he was very early to see the impact the coronavirus could have on his business and on the economy in general, even when most people, including world leaders, called it a hoax or just a bad flu. So where did he find the information he needed to make critical business decisions when so many others couldn't see it or just fought hard for their beliefs? I'm Kathy Fetke, and welcome to The Real Wealth Show. Low Hornbuckle was making good money running a car dealership, but he wasn't fulfilled. So he started to learn about real estate investing as a business and eventually chose residential assisted living as his asset class of choice. He's now CEO and founder of Sage Oak Assisted Living and Memory Care, which he calls a boutique assisted living company, with five locations in Dallas and two developments in Texas and Louisiana totaling 300 beds and an estimated value of $45 million. And I asked him to be here on The Real Well Show because I was so impressed with how quickly he learned about the truth of this pandemic, which is hard to do in today's world of over-information. And he's since helped many others understand the implications of it, if they're willing to listen. So, Lo, welcome to The Real Well Show. Hey, thanks for having me. So, we have been both very active on Facebook. There's been a lot of information on Facebook, a lot of sudden experts on health and pandemics been very interesting to watch. You have had very, very strong opinions. You're also a real estate investor and you were really on this early. And that is so important, right? As real estate investors, we've got to see what's coming. If you're looking at just where you are in the past, that could get you in trouble. So you were one of the first to jump on the research of what's really going on with this pandemic. So why? Why did you jump on so quickly? Well, first off, I mean, I do work with the elderly in my assisted living and memory care business. And I think a lot of people think that's the reason. And that's not actually the reason. It's probably the reason why my interest kind of stayed there. Um, but I think one of the lessons I really learned, um, and I give a lot of credit to Robert and Russ, to the real estate guys, who I know that you've known for a long time, you know, they always talk about kind of getting out of your knowledge silos. And, uh, you know, their version of the story is in 2008, getting wiped out by things that in hindsight were very predictable, you know, being in real estate and not understanding the bond market, you know, being in real estate and not understanding how commercial paper works, being in real estate and not understanding how the oil markets work. And so for me, um, this was just a natural extension of me not staying in a knowledge silo of just kind of like, you know, being interested in what's happening around the world. And the simple explanation is the reason why I was early is I just assumed that if anything would scare the Chinese government, so much so that I was seeing videos of them welding people inside their apartments and you see people in hazmat suits with automatic weapons running around a town of 11 million people. I just assumed that was going to be a big deal if they thought it was a big deal. So a lot of what I did was kind of in poker, which I used to play a lot. You know, it's a game of incomplete information. And if you think about studying economics or supply chain or other countries, there's a lot of incomplete information. I was just reading the opponent and the opponent in this situation was very terrified. They were very concerned about what was going on. And so if something scares the Chinese government that bad, I assume it's probably going to scare me a little as well. And uh, so that was really where I kind of got into it. And initially, I really thought it was more going to be a supply chain disruption problem because I really felt like from, you know, and I'm guilty of this as well. I mean, how many of us have heard, you know, the media, you know, oh, we got SARS, we've got MERS, we've got Ebola, we've got this. And, and so it's very easy for us to just 
file away things in a bucket, you know, and say, okay, well, this is just a media scare tactic. And I think a lot of people that disagreed with our positions on this matter probably did that. And I understand why they did that. But I don't think they were spending the time researching what was happening in China. And then I started getting worried about supply chains. Like, you know, I'm in, I'm in development. Like, where do we get our light fixtures from? Where do we get our door handles from? Yeah. You know, where's our floors come from, our countertops? So I spent a lot of time on that and just kind of watched this thing slowly move. And then when it started, you know, really getting into Iran, that was another, another big clue for me. And then obviously Italy was when uh, most of the Western world kind of started waking up to kind of what was happening here. What's kind of funny is um, if I were to distill this down into one thing, a lot of my friends that understand what's happening early have Twitter. As dumb as that sounds, Twitter's a really interesting place to aggregate news if you're good about following the right people. So for me, that meant following the guys at Peak Prosperity. It meant you know, following some people that are concerned about what the Fed is doing. It meant following people that are sort of macroeconomic folks. So one of the funniest things is if I talk to people, if they got on it early, almost without a doubt, they have Twitter. Because Twitter is a great place for really lo- like localized information. Like if there's like an earthquake in California, the first place I'm going to log in is Twitter because it's going to be a place where everyone's kind of talking about what's happening and you can do hashtags that are very localized. Yeah. So maybe this is the one time that uh, Twitter was a good thing. This could be like the one moment that Twitter saved the universe or, or and, and saved are you quite in, a few people. Are you invested in Twitter? <laughs> no, 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 I'm not. I don't I very rarely tweet. I just, I basically use it as a news aggregating source, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So with Facebook, you know, you have your, you know, you have your, uh, your aunt who may or may not be crazy sharing her opinions on Twitter. You can just pick and choose who you want to follow. There's no personal connection. And you can get in. You can get into relationships with world leaders and experts and all kinds of stuff. And so I just kind of use Twitter as a news aggregation site, and that's kind of why I thought I was early was I was able to go and do a lot of research um, about this kind of in the in the mid to late January stages of hey, here's why this concerns me, and then just kept seeing things over and over and over. Yeah, and you're you know you're young. You're among the group that really wasn't so worried about it. Now I I was worried. A little bit later than you, because I went to Denver. I went to the best ever conference in end of February, and I was around mm-hmm. 800, 900 people shaking hands and eating food that was sitting out. And and I am older, and I do have asthma, so I obviously wasn't that worried until right when I got back. And then I started. I don't think it was Twitter. I think it was Facebook that I saw the uh, Peak Prosperity Chris Martinson video. I, I can't remember who recommended it, and it just made sense. And then pretty soon, the things that he was saying were coming true. So I'm like, okay, this yeah. he's on it. So that was interesting. But however people kind of found the information that they believed and trusted, what I think is interesting about something you said earlier is just noticing and not making a sudden judgment without researching. That's what I think we both noticed a lot on Facebook is people having really strong opinions without having done really any research. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, one of the things I've tried to do, and again, I, I don't want to make this political at all. I'll reference a couple of polls. So on 313, there was a poll done by ABC. And there was like a 23% spread at, on 313 between Democrats and Republicans saying if this is going to be a substantial impact on their life. You know, Democrats around 80, Republicans are around, around 60. But it was a pretty substantial difference. And, you know, what I think about this is, is that Obviously, we know for the most part, Democrats have a higher tendency to believe in things like climate change, right? And Republicans maybe less so. So I think the lesson there might be that, you know, I think Democrats are more primed to um, maybe accept scientific evidence from scientists and experts. And other folks may push back against that. I think the distrust of the media might play a role in those things. 
And so one of the things I had to do um, was I got, had to train myself again. Every time there was an article that quoted someone or did something, simply click the link embedded for the actual transcript of what they said or the video or whatever. So you have to, you to t- kind of take some effort. And the most famous example recently was uh, the gentleman, uh, Neil Ferguson, who uh, went to Imperial College and he did their modeling of what would happen in the UK and what would happen in the United States if they did nothing. And the numbers were pretty scary. And they were one of the, the scary numbers that might have motivated the UK and the United States to kind of start taking a little bit more drastic action. You know, here in the United States, we all kind of saw our leaders kind of change tone kind of randomly. Mm-hmm. It was even maybe one of the suppositions was that maybe one of the leaders caught it, right? Like they got it. Now it's more serious matter. Turned out that might not have been true or, or wasn't true. So later, uh, Neil Ferguson went in front of uh, the parliament to update uh, and do an interview And he basically said, hey, the things that we're doing here in the UK have really made a big dent. I can revise down that based on our current track, the deaths is going to be some really small fractional number compared to what I projected. Keep in mind, he projected if we did nothing, took no social distancing steps, just life as normal. So this wasn't a backtrack. This wasn't him recanting his model. This was just him putting in new variables of, hey, we're taking these steps that should help reduce the spread. And people jumped on that and wrote, fantastical stories saying he'd backtracked. Well, what I noticed in a lot of those stories were there was no link to the transcript. There was no link to the video. So I had to go find it. And I don't like have skills at finding UK parliamentary scientific parliamentary subcommittee group videos. It took a while. I found it. And I think he was taken out of context. And so I think what's happening is this is a real-time situation where we're seeing people are, so there's, I think there's two elements. There's an acceptance process that Chris and Adam talk about a lot where when you get really bad news like, hey, you know, our currency is, is based on a myth and a lie and we're eventually going to have all these economic problems, right? People are going to have an adjustment process to that. Right. Well, same thing with climate change as an example. Well, in this, if we want to call this a fast moving climate change, this is very terrifying to think about like your social life being changed and people you care about passing away and you know, hospital systems being overrun. So it's natural that people are going to have a psychological process to accept that. So I think that's one of the reasons why people are so quick to share misinformation because they want to confirm their beliefs because they don't want to be fearful. They don't want to be scared. They don't want to take action. So they find it comforting and they get people to agree with them and they feel good about it. So that's part of it. And the second part of it is I think there's a segment of the population that is very, very prone to sort of attacking the media and attacking experts and discounting their opinions. You know, there's a, there's a whole thread right now that happens, especially amongst real estate investors of college is bad. You know, if you go to college, you're really a loser. And, and you, you know, who does that? You start your own business. And I know where that comes from. I know what that means. But, you know, in, in a pandemic, it's probably a good idea to listen to people that, you know, study pandemics for a living. <laughs> That's just my opinion, right? So, um <laughs> That's and so that that I think is a a big part of the story. However, however, let let's just look at that. If you are busy, you're yeah. a busy person who does believe that the media loves to sensationalize because that's true. Yeah. Sure, and, agreed. And there's a belief, a very strong belief, that there is a group of media journalists who want to overthrow Trump and they want to sure. do it with fear. So th- I think that was the underlying. Um, you know, pushback from a lot of people is, oh, it's just another media sensationalism. Go to the CDC website and you'll see, you'll get the real information. I heard that over and over again, but you and I were listening to 
something else saying, no, that information wasn't correct. And the who, you know, people are, are going to these organizations that are funded by people, like you said, who should know, you know, and if they're posting something on, on the website, that's, people are like, you're not, you're not going to the news source, which is the CDC. You and I were listening to something different and knew that wasn't correct. But how could somebody actually get the right information if our own government and these organizations who are supposed to, supposed to know and be prepared, and this is all they do, and they've been through this before, it's not like a pandemic is something unexpected. You know, it's happened in the past. They know the process. So how were those websites incorrect and why? So I think we could probably do an entire show about unpacking just, just that question. But so I tell you my philosophy on this type of stuff, and I think it's, it serves a lot of people well. When you find someone who you think is smart, and when you find someone who you think also happens to have a good heart, and then you find someone who you can't really assign uh, monetary motivation to. So in my case, uh, that was Chris and Adam, you know, happened to spend some time with them. And so I know them to be good guys. I think they're smart people. Um, now, listen, and again, I'm, I want to be really clear. I can assign a financial motivation to them, right? Oh, hey, sure. we're going to do awesome reporting on this. Yeah, that was my husband's website. thing. It's like, hey, they, they have a subscription, you know, uh, program. 100%. and. Yeah. So he. So he I was fortunate that I had the context of knowing them. Yes. But, but what too. I will say is a lot of people in my circle also knew them and couldn't see through it. So again, this yeah. uh, probably a little bit of it comes from playing poker and just being like, listen, if the Chinese government is welding people into apartments, that's a concern for me. Yeah. And so I think one of the things is, is that when you have this happen in real time, if you're actually able to sort of just have news feeds kind of come through and just kind of give things off. And going back to kind of Robert and Russ, you know, Russ is a big consumer of media, you know, whatever the case may be. If you can have stuff kind of come in in real time, then it provides a level of context. And so for me, having seen them do those things and then seeing reports where uh, somebody would say, hey, you know, this may actually be airborne. There's some anecdotal evidence of this. And then the who's not updating and the CDC's not updating. And then kind of watching this stuff, just like a slow moving brush fire kind of move through the world. Having happened in real time makes a huge difference. Yes. Because um, when it's not happening in real time, everyone kind of goes back and we can all sort of have hindsight and, and all this different vision. And I got to tell you, the thing that shocked me about this whole thing was the CDC. I have been absolutely just shocked. And I never thought I would be so disappointed in the CDC. And ultimately, they made a lot of mistakes in this process. I know they're working with incomplete information. But I think that the recommendation that masks are ineffective and that if you use a mask, you're more likely to infect yourself, I think was given because they realized they had messed up and had not taken steps to prepare. And so um, essentially what happened was they said, hey, listen, we don't have enough masks for our healthcare workers. We need to tell everyone masks are ineffective so that we can stop competing over the masks that our healthcare workers need. What I would have preferred to see have happen is for them to say, hey, we messed up. We made a mistake. We didn't prepare necessarily. Nobody wins if the healthcare system gets swamped. Please donate your masks. When we solve the supply chain issues, we'll give them back to you or we'll replace them because where this is all headed and where we're, what we're going to see in two or three months is everybody in public is going to be wearing masks. And the fundamental challenge for me is, is now the people that we're supposed to trust have either been incompetent or worse, they've lied to us in a public health crisis and the, the ramifications of that could be generational, right? It could, could lead to people not trusting very important sources in, in a public health crisis. You know, information that you can trust that's clear and concise is the most important thing. So to answer your question, 
I had a lot of trust in Adam and Chris at Peak Prosperity, and I, I followed their advice because I had the contact. And I don't think if I had known them, I would have been able to do that. Yeah. But eventually, having seen what was happening on Twitter, having Adam and Chris kind of raise the red flag, and then just even thinking like, okay, what if this isn't a big virus thing, but what if this causes China to be shut down for two or three months? What's going to happen to you know construction equipment? So yeah. essentially, it caught my attention because I think what happens a lot of times is I was at a conference, the last conference I went to, and they said, oh, we've got a handle on this coronavirus thing. We're not worried about that at all, bro. You know, They hit me with that. And I was like, oh, cool. Where do you get your, uh, you do value add deals, right? And they said, yeah. So where do you get your construction materials from? Silence. They didn't know. And I think a lot of people don't know that stuff. And frankly, I wouldn't either. I have a partner. I asked him, I said, what are we worried about? And he's like, I'm worried about door handles. I'm worried about light fixtures because that's where our stuff does come from China. So just imagine you're, you're a deal sponsor, you're in multifamily, you think you're completely immune to these types of things and you don't know where your construction materials come from. Yeah. So for me, I realized it was a big blind spot for me. And so I just spent a lot of time educating myself because at first it was a supply chain issue. Mm-hmm. Then when it got to Iran, I'm like, well, it's obviously spreading. Then when it got to Italy, I'm like, okay, I think we're going to have a real problem here. And yeah. so a lot of that was really just about slowly, incrementally sort of raising the temperature on how big a problem I thought this was going to have here. If in January, if you'd have asked me, is the United States going to become the new epicenter? I would have thought you were crazy because I never in my wildest dreams imagined the CDC would mess up testing. I never in my wildest dreams imagined that the Surgeon General would tell the American public, hey, masks are ineffective. And, and we did all that. And so I was right, but also I'm shocked at how flat-footed um, our government was yeah. in this and how flat-footed you know, healthcare systems were in the face of this sort of pending problem. Now, I don't know where to assign blame for that, but what I will say is I think one of the key things you can do in life to prepare personally is when you find smart people that you think are trustworthy, when they raise the red flag, you got to listen. And the way to listen is do your own research and kind of get to that point. If everybody would have been paying attention to this at the end of January, then I think things like maybe maybe we don't have Mardi Gras in Louisiana. You know, maybe that gets canceled, yeah. and maybe Louisiana isn't the fastest growing cluster of cases in the world. Right? I've seen some evidence to suggest that. You know, why go to conferences and meet people and spend all the money that you spend if when you meet those people, they tell you the thing that you just don't want to hear it and you ignore it. Right? Otherwise, all the money you spend, all the plane tickets, all the networking doesn't mean anything. Yeah. I mean, it's very difficult to find that person to trust. And unfortunately, it seems that we've turned into a country that really puts far too much trust in the government. And I hate to say that. I wish I trusted my government, but I just don't um, because I, there's often ulterior motives, right? And, and so I have always treated, I've always questioned why are they saying what they're saying and who are they covering or who are they sponsoring or who are they supporting? Um, You know, in the past, for many, 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 I want to say generations, but for for many millennia, there was very little trust in leaders. You know, you had kings who made decisions and they were self-motivated, right? So there was, for, for many, many years, many generations, thousands and thousands of years, people didn't trust their authorities. And then somehow, I don't know how, we got to a point where we put all of our faith and authorities. And in this case, one person really um, seems to be controlling the ideas and the actions of a lot of people. So for me, I am constantly out there saying, trust your gut. Like you said, when you're looking at China and saying they're really taking this seriously, 
And I mean, to the point when I saw, I, I didn't know about welding them into their apartments, but I saw them building hospitals. And I thought, first of all, how do you build a hospital overnight? And second of all, why? That's terrifying. And they want to put hospitals in air quotes because it sure looked like a quarantine prison. Uh, I don't even know if it had running water, um, but yeah, hospitals right. in air quotes. Yes, they so were building So that hospitals. was enough for me to go, well, if it's there, why wouldn't it get here? And then sure. afterwards, when so many people were, were using the evidence of, well, look, China's back up and running, so will we be. And then I'm like, but that's not deductive reasoning. We're not doing what they did. So how would we get the same results as them? You know, that's silly. So, you know, again, just common sense and trusting your gut and noticing things and not just taking the word of the CDC when there have been pandemic movies, many, many over the last decade that showed that maybe, maybe the government agencies weren't so on top of it in those movies. You know? sure. so, and anyway. all the public health officials say that these things are inevitable, right? They're not, yeah. not only are they, they likely, they're inevitable, right? So. Right. As, as real estate investors, we think recessions are inevitable and at different times likely and pandemics are also inevitable and likely. And the, the thing is, this is not anybody's fault, but our response to the things that we have done and responses certainly are people's faults. You know, I think one of the interesting things, because I think we have to kind of like kind of put different things in buckets, like the human toll and the loss of life and all the things that happen obviously has its place. And, and, and that's, you know, obviously not the scope of what we came here to talk about. And then you have kind of this, the economic ramifications of both the actual virus and, and then, you know, our response to slow the spread of the virus and all the things that entails and the human toll that entails. That's kind of a separate thing. But the generational effects of we can't trust the CDC, you know, and hopefully they restore confidence in themselves. We can't trust the World Health Organization. We can't trust that the government um, will even do basic uh, measures to keep us safe. Um, those things can be generational in their effect because we can read about what happened at the, to the Tuskegee Airmen, right? Which obviously was a horrible you know, moment in our history where the government did a lot of really horrible things to people. And we have lots of those we can look at in history books. But I think the moment that you see a mistake by a government or even to not make it not about governments, I mean, imagine if you work in a hospital right now and you're a supervisor and the hospital's telling you, hey, don't use an N95 mask when you intubate this patient. And the supervisor's like, I'm telling my nurses to use an N95 mask because they're not going to be safe otherwise. You've literally got private hospitals that are trying to conserve resources, but they're conserving physical, like a mask, and they're putting their people at risk. So it's not just about governments. I think what this is really about is maybe a loss of faith in a lot of different institutions, right? Corporations and World Health Organization and governments. I think we've been on this track for a long time where, you know, can you trust the police? Can you trust Penn State? Can you trust Baylor? Can you trust the World Health Organization? Can you trust the Catholic Church? And I think what all this boils down to is you see a lot of organizations that are putting self-preservation over mission. Mm -hmm. And organizations that are mission focused would never do that. But what happens over time is, is organizations start to worry about preserving themselves, preserving their power, preserving their money. And they're so at the expense of the mission because the World Health Organization has done a lot of things that, that don't seem to be consistent with its mission, as has the CDC, as has the US government, as have many private hospitals in doing so. So I agree with you. It's very hard to, it's very hard to, to find where to get this information from. But I think at the end of the day, the only way you can do it is, you know, when something comes across your desk, do the research, 
try to find people around you that you think are smart and can trust these things because there's a lot of people that figure this out. I read an article. I, don't, I haven't gotten too far into it. There's a grocery store in Texas called HEB. Maybe you've heard of it, but it's mostly in Austin, the Austin area. They started doing their pandemic planning on January 15th. Okay. So someone in their organization, this made sense to them. And they, so I haven't dove into the article. I'll send it to you if you want me to, but just imagine you're a grocery store in Texas and you manage to synthesize the data well enough that you start doing your pandemic planning in January 15th. And meanwhile, the figurehead for the United States is literally saying it's a, it's a media hoax weeks after that. So, you know, you, you, it comes back to you, you, we are in charge of our own lives. This is my sure. core belief is that we are in charge of our reality. And pandemics are nothing new. There is a very clear procedure on how to handle it and how to mitigate it quickly. And we didn't do any of it. Had we done it, things would have turned out very differently and we probably wouldn't be having the economic collapse that we're about to have. It's a very, yeah, people teach it in universities. I have a very large network and I have literally university professors saying, we teach how to deal, how to deal with this. Like people know. You, you social distance, you wear masks. Everyone should just have their own mask. That should have just been normal preparation, just like you should have six months reserves for your properties if you want to be successful or in your business. You need reserves. You know, if, if all these businesses are going under because they're going to be out of business for a couple of months, maybe they didn't plan well either in having those reserves. So bringing the whole thing back to personal responsibility and, you know, obviously most people don't have masks. We had masks because we live in a fire zone. So it was like, hey, we want to have sure. some masks for that purpose because you never know when a fire is coming. But I think on personal responsibility, I think this is a really important point because the problem with this situation is, is extreme personal responsibility can also be dangerous because we also have to recognize that we, we are responsible for ourselves. But in this case, uh, we also need to, uh, to borrow from a religion that I don't practice. We need to be uh, our brother's keeper. And by that, I mean, you know, public health is by definition the health of the public. And so I think we need to have personal responsibility, but also be mature enough to kind of go down the Stephen Covey seven habits path of recognizing we're also interdependent and that someone else that says, well, I'm not worried about catching this. You alluded to the beginning of the show. Hey, you're younger. By the way, I'm 38. So I'm not that young, but um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm still safe, but you know, still. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of people that are my age and a little bit younger that are out there ignoring all of the recommendations about how to stop this thing. And, you know, their response is, well, if you're scared, you should stay home. That doesn't work. And so I think we have to acknowledge that our preparation and getting ready is personal. You know, we can have personal cash reserves. We can have food. We can have masks. We can have the ability to get water. You know, we can grow a garden. You know, we can, we can go to the gym. We can do what we, we can take personal responsibility for all that stuff. But there also needs to be a level of us acknowledging there's interdependence. And if I spread it, even though I'm not likely to get hurt or sick, and that causes someone else to get harmed, then it sort of starts to violate the sort of libertarian philosophy of do no harm to others. And in a public health crisis, we have to respect that we need to be independent, but also we're interdependent on each other. I and could not agree more. I mean, I grew I up- I just had to add that because I've I had a lot of those that. conversations. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I, what I meant is, let's back up. I grew up in California. We know there's earthquakes. We, we sure. know there are fires now, right? I grew up in California being prepared for an earthquake. Like we, yeah. we had to have earthquake drills all the time. This is what you do when you have an earthquake. And you're supposed to have supplies. You need to have water handy. You need to have an emergency kit. How many people have it? Not very many, I don't think. Sure. Um, so, so that's just one example of 
we know that emergencies can happen. We know that there's things, it just it happens to be the pandemic this time. But if, if we know that pandemics are a thing, which we know it's happened in the yep. past, there's sure. been plenty of TED Talks on it. There's been plenty of movies on it. It's happened in real time, real life. Uh, why weren't we trained in the same way that Californians have been trained or used to be to prepare for your earthquakes? Why wasn't there some kind of training like everybody should just have a mask or a stack of them? Because if this were to happen, and it could be anything, maybe it's not a pandemic. Like I said, here in California, it could be a fire. We need to have masks because it's, it's toxic air. Why wasn't that a training that we went through that we just knew and we're prepared and everybody had their masks and other healthcare workers had their masks? Somehow, somebody at the top didn't feel that was important. And I don't know why. But No, I, I, I agree. And, and I think that there have been a lot of people that are talking about, you know, preparing yourself for all kinds of that are that are certainly having their day in the sun right now. Yeah. Um, been, you know, now it's like cool to be a prepper. There's no prepper shame anymore. Now it's like, no oh, wow, that's shame. A nice, nope. nice can of peaches you got there. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think some people have tried to do that and I don't think it's caught on. And I, I think you're getting, getting to the heart of, it's an intensely American thing. It's not like, for example, a lot of the countries that are being successful had the experience of SARS and so they just synthesized that experience. And, you know, you're kind of referencing earthquakes. Uh, you know, I, I read, and I want to say it was Adam Taggart that told me this, that you know what percentage of people in California have an earthquake preparedness kit? It's like 3%. And so, even, le- I mean, a very small amount of percentage that have earthquake insurance. And it's amazing that lenders will lend without requiring it. You know, it's it's just amazing when we know, we know we're going to have them, right? We know so it. So I think what this, this is behavioral theory. I think what this is, is this is an unknown, scary thing in the future. And it's the same reason why people don't want to take get the right types of insurance for life or, you know, disability insurance. It's a scary thing in the future. And so it's easy for us to underwrite it and just ignore it and, and, mm-hmm. and, and understand that a 1% risk or a 5% risk over a long enough timeline becomes inevitable. And so I think that's, I think that's really gets to the heart of this whole thing is that it, it comes down to behavioral theory, right? Like this is something for those of us that have kind of been early on this, when you saw what was going on in China and then you hear like, oh, when they announce their lockdown of the city, Stop announcing lockdowns. That drives me nuts. When they announced the lockdown, they gave everyone that had affluence two days to get out of the city and like 5 million people left. Well, there goes containment. Italy made the same mistake. (laughs) They leaked it. The New York governor did something similar. Trump recently said, hey, I'm thinking about putting this area on lockdown. Never telegraph it. And what's worse is if you telegraph it and then you don't do it, now you've just caused people to flee and spread which yeah. spreads the virus. And then if you don't actually do it, you've literally created the worst possible public health situation and literally taken no action. So a lot of our leaders are just inherently stupid. And they do things that are just, there's no justification for warning people that you're going to lock them down, right? When you want to stop movement of people. Yeah, the whole and, thing is, it's like, this is not new. How was there not training, at least among you know the governors and the, the mayors on what you do and what has worked in the past? And just same kind of thing. Anyway, let's get back to real estate. It's a real estate show. How are you? I, I've seen lately people saying, oh, I'm still syndicating and I'm still looking for deals. And is it a good time for that? And while at the same time, you can't uh, evict people for three or four sure. months. So what are your thoughts? Let's start with this. Do you own multifamily and do you own uh, rental property now? Uh, yes. So uh, I, right now... Yeah. So with our tenants, um, the first thing we did is we proactively reached out to them and said, hey, you know, this is a thing. We understand some of you may have lost your jobs. We think proactive, like my philosophy on communication is the first person to communicate almost always wins. And so we just contact the tenants. 
create a personal touch. Hey, you know what, you know, we called them all. I think if you have like say less than 50 doors, you can do that uh, pretty easily. Uh, you know, obviously letters, emails, and texts are possible, but if you can call them, it's great because you can get their tone and inflection. You can, you can gauge yeah. if you think they're BSing you or not. So we called our tenants in Louisiana, let them know, pay what you can. We'll work with you. Got a very good response to that. Um, most of what I'm doing right now is um, I have assisted living and memory care properties in Dallas. And we'll kind of bracket that for a second because our experience with this will be totally different than a multifamily. But I'm also developing build around townhouse communities, um, like 90 units that function like multifamily. We're also developing assisted living. So one of the things that's kind of interesting is let's say that with this situation, if you think about it, if you were building something right now, it's going to come online in 12 to 15 months then by almost every model, you're probably well on the other side of the problems of the pandemic. So there are times when development may actually seem less crazy. And now I'm glad to be developing because if I would have bought, say, an apartment complex that was 95% occupied two months ago, and now all of a sudden the economic occupancy falls to 70 or maybe in May, 65, I mean, that, that's devastatingly hard to predict in your business plan. In development, you can actually, like maybe we'll, well, we won't start for a month or maybe a city will shut us down and not do inspections and we'll have some problems and challenges and delays. But right now, this is really an operational crisis for real estate. It's not really a building crisis if you can solve the supply chain issues. So we're kind of fortunate in that we sort of stress test a lot of the stuff that we were doing in the face of this. We actually closed a raise the week that the Dow just like puked up all the equity. And we had about 20% of our investors back out. Uh, first time it ever happened, pledge we were fully subscribed and about 20% of our pledge investors backed out. It's phased construction, so we can just raise the money later. It's not a big deal. So we hit our floor and kind of did it. But you know, I think right now, my concern is, is that some people are out there trying to complete transactions that with this data don't make sense to complete. Yeah. And you know, if you're a person that just left their W2 job and you're like, man, I really need this fee that I'm going to get for doing this deal and I'm not sure yeah. it's a good idea. That's really what scares me. So yeah. I think every deal that is an existing deal should have a whole new set of underwriting principles Absolutely. overlaid it. Mm-hmm. And every investor should know that. Mm-hmm. If it's development, it may not matter. Now, getting back to assisted living and memory care, what I don't know is I don't know the effect this is going to have. And again, we're separating. I always want to say this because there's some people that never seem to, and they seem to forget the fact that, oh, let me back up. There are a lot of our peers that are probably taking let's invest when there's blood in the streets a little too literally for my taste. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's there's some perversion there. Like, yeah. guys, let's let's deal with the loss of life. Let's deal with some of the human suffering before we, you know, really worry about our you know, post-corona deal flow. Yeah, uh, it's, it's amazing. I, some of the comments I see, oh, it, just, it just breaks my heart. It's like greedy. It's, ah, here we go. Sure. So for us, I mean, because this thing is essentially the angel of death for our clients, right? Most of our clients are older, have comorbidities. It, it is a terrible, terrible virus for them. We don't know what that's going to do to supply demand numbers I think it'll probably balance them out just because I think there's a lot of projects that haven't started that are either going to find scared capital or difficulty in being built. So I think it'll probably all, from a supply-demand perspective, I think some of the loss of future clients, again, not commenting on the human toll, just the business side, some of the loss of your business, business, specifically in senior housing. Yeah. And just like, you know, for example, if if we're building a project in, in in a town in North Texas and 200 people... Uh, succumb to the virus, and maybe thirty of them would have been our potential customers. Right, that has an effect on on the, our development project. 
but also too, maybe a project down the street that was a few months behind ours is now not getting started because of scared capital, because of restrictions, or maybe because they didn't prepare for this and they're suffering problems in the other parts of their business. So I don't know where that's going to land. But, but what I will say is, is that one thing about our model is we do um, small boutique assisted living and memory care. So right now I've got a, a couple of nursing homes that are within one, one's about 10 miles away. The other one's about two miles away, basically our neighbor. And they both have pretty substantial uh, COVID clusters. And I'm terrified for them because the thing about a big building is if you've got 200 beds and there's one door, you get to make one mistake and you potentially now have one mistake that could infect, you know, 200 residents and and 300 staff or 200 staff. Our smaller environments, I have to make five mistakes, 10 mistakes, 15 mistakes to have the same level of exposure. And so I think our model actually does have some natural built-in infection control advantages. And I think you will see when this is all said and done, my industry will sit down and look at this and go, wow, you know, residential care homes fared better than skilled nursing facilities, the big boxes. It fared better than the big buildings. Now, I'm saying that and I could, you know, get a phone call 10 minutes from now that one of my residents has, has gotten infected. So again, I'm not, I was a knock on wood. I am not, uh, I am not suggesting that that's going to be enough to stop this. One of the things that's been really hard for me is just imagine, you know, taking responsibility for the safety and health of 75 people and then also watching and saying, well, this thing beat China, it beat Italy, it beat Spain, it beat France, it beat the US, it beat a lot of really powerful people. So what can I really do? I can do the best that I can. That's all I can do. And I got to hope that's enough. And so that's very difficult for someone like me, this control freak, because I really want to not have this come in my front door, but I can't stop it. Not really. And I just can take the best practices to get our odds to as low a number as possible. But in the end, I think there will be, when, we, when we're at the stage, we're ready to actually assess um, who was effective at fighting this. I think one of the answers in terms of a business level will be smaller boutique type settings. Because if you have 10 people together and you got a couple of caregivers and the caregivers come from the outside, you have two chances of, of transmission. If you've got 200 people and 300 staff, you got 300 chances of transmission. And so it's just a math equation. So I think smaller environments will fare better. And I think the people that are committed to that model, like our company, will have a story to tell when this is all said and done of basically, hey, looking at the data, you're clinically safer in these environments for a lot of reasons. And one of them is because there's a greater chance that we'll be able to have good infection control and keep a virus out of the front door. Wow. Yeah, that's, a, that's an added challenge for you, for sure. It's a different experience than a lot of people are dealing with uh, in, in, in our business. Yeah, very good. Well, we are definitely over time, but it was well, well worth it. Um, we talked about a lot of things today, and I, you're just a really brilliant person. So I appreciate I'm not sure that's true, in. but I'll take it. Uh, well, it's, it's like, uh, if I were just to sum everything up, where we are now over the next six months, where do you see the U.S. in six months? Where do you see the U.S. in a year? Okay, so the big caveat I'm going to say is we've done such a poor job on testing that it's really hard to extrapolate the current situation. So I, 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 don't, I don't know. Um, what I will say is I think we're going to get better at testing. I think over the next couple of months, we're absolutely going to get better at testing. And once we get better at testing, we'll be able to do some things. So my prediction will be we're going to get better at testing. We're going to get everybody basically to wear masks in public. And I think we'll be able to start to restart our economy when you start to see those things. And the other thing is there's a really good article I recommend called The Hammer and the Dance. Um, it's a Medium article. 
And uh, this is actually happening in Hong Kong right now. When you take these social distancing measures um, and you take very draconian or very strict social distancing measures and you stop the spread of this thing, the moment that you try to return to normalcy, your numbers will spike again. Because the whole name of the game is you're trying to either get a vaccine, you're trying to get therapies, or you're trying to get to where the entire population has contracted this and you have herd immunity. Um, and so what I think is going to happen is I think you're going to see this situation where I think as we relax some things, I think you're going to see it kind of crop up again. And I think smart countries, um, and hopefully we'll join the category of smart countries one day soon. So far, not so good. But I think smart countries will realize what we need to be doing is we need to monitor the rate of infection versus the number of hospital beds we have and the rate of infection versus how many ICU beds we have. And I think the hammer and the dance uh, supposition is that you're going to kind of see social distancing be ratcheted on and ratcheted off based on those numbers. Because everyone knows we're balancing keeping people safe with the economy and then our hospital systems, our healthcare systems. So those are kind of the three things that are all in consideration. And so what I'd, I'd like to think is that we'll get, get a handle on testing. We'll be able to have parts of the country kind of go back to work that don't have really bad outbreaks. And then eventually we'll start to see a return to normalcy. But I think that for a long time, people are going to be wearing masks in public. I think certain behaviors and certain activities, which are, are deemed excessively risky and maybe not worth it. Like, you know, would I, ever, would I get on a cruise right now? I don't know that I'll ever get on a cruise. You know, I don't know that. You know, when I go to a football game, you know, I'm a big football fan. I might just watch it from home. Mm -hmm. So I do think there's going to be some generational effects for some people, but how many of that affects and, and how many people it takes to change our collective consciousness, I don't know. If 20% of people change their behavior, that, that, that seems substantial to me. Yeah. So to answer your question, I don't know. I think we're going to get better on testing. And I think we're going to see um, a prolonged period of kind of ratcheting up and ratcheting down uh, social distancing strategies based on you know, what's going on with our hospital system, what's going on with our ICU beds uh, and uh, what their needs are. Do you think we will be opening up the country, so to speak, uh, by July, like is, is being predicted summer, warm, does it matter? Warm weather? I don't think, I don't think it makes sense to think about the United States as a country at this point. Mm, yeah. um, you know, I mean, if I'm in Italy right now having this conversation, if I'm in New York having this conversation, it's going to feel different than, you know, Dallas is probably maybe the, maybe the 13th or 14th worst outbreak city. I know you're in California. What, what part of California? LA. We're right in it. Got it. Yeah. So you are maybe the number two or number three city in terms of, uh, in terms of track. So the context is going to matter a lot based on where you are. Mm -hmm. I really hope that this thing is a regional, um, uh, regional virus. I mean, there's really pretty good evidence that in a lot of countries, it has been regional, right? Even in Italy, there's been regions that have been very hard hit, regions that have been less hard hit. You know, China obviously is a very big country with a lot of people and they had a region that was pretty hard hit. Spain has a lot of their problems isolated to one or two areas. You know, if we're lucky in the United States, maybe we'll have five or 10 or 15 cities that are particularly hard hit, but the rest of the country will be able to give them resources, right? So if you think about a hurricane, you know, a hurricane is going to hit Mississippi Mississippi can call on Louisiana, hey, we need, we need linesmen, we need, you know, we need healthcare workers, we need you know, food, we, you know, we can ask for resources. Mm -hmm. if, if as a country we can keep this thing on a regional basis and you have to have testing to do that, then uh, we can share resources, right? We can send healthcare workers to New York to help out. So I don't think it makes sense to think about the United States as a country. I think it makes sense to think about the United States in terms of regional and city-based outbreaks. Mm -hmm. And if we're lucky, then... My hometown of Shreveport, Louisiana, 
won't go too crazy, but the reality is, is that very well could, and we just don't know the answer to that. We just don't know yet. All right. Well, Lo, thank you so much for joining me here on The Real Well Show. Really appreciate your input. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And uh, guys, please do your own research and uh, don't listen to anything that we've said without doing your own research. Absolutely. And thank you for joining me here on The Real Well Show. You can listen to this and any past episodes at realwealthshow.com.